0: Hey, this is Tiffany Aurora. Welcome back to the Entrepreneurs and Artists podcast. If you're enjoying the show, I hope that you'll take a second to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribing to the show is quick, it's easy, and it's completely free, and that's one of the best ways that you can support this podcast. Another great way to support the podcast is to stop over to Apple Podcasts and rate the show, hopefully five stars, if you enjoy it, and also leave a review. We have a great episode queued up for this week featuring a conversation with Aaron P. Dworkin. There's so much good stuff in this one. Enjoy. My guest on today's show is Aaron P. Dworkin. Aaron was named a 2005 MacArthur Fellow. He was President Obama's first appointment to the National Council on the Arts and is currently a member of President Biden's Arts Policy Committee. He's former dean and current professor of arts leadership and entrepreneurship at the University of Michigan's School of Music, Theater, and Dance. Aaron is also a social entrepreneur, a performing artist, an author, a filmmaker, a philanthropist, a poet. He's very busy. His most recent book, The Poet Journalist, is a collection of poetry that offers a powerful look at issues of personal identity, the Black experience, inequality, and the arts. As Aaron mentioned in our conversation, excellence in the arts requires rigor, and he is an excellent example of what that looks like in practice. In our conversation, amongst other things, we talked about questions to work through, when deciding whether or not to pursue your artistic interests as a full-time career, reckoning with imposter syndrome, Aaron's lottery test and death test, two tests that he uses when determining how to spend his time, and so much more. This is such a great episode. I learned so much and I'm sure you will too. I hope you enjoy it. All right, so I am very excited to welcome Aaron Dworkin to today's episode of the Entrepreneurs and Artists Podcast. Aaron, welcome. Thanks for being Thanks.
1: here. Thanks. so much. It's great to be here, Tiffany.
0: So I have a number of questions for you, but my first one you might laugh at a little bit, but I, I have to say that as I was looking at all of the things that you've been involved in over. The many years of your career, I think of you as a little bit like a superhero in the arts world because you have uh, so much content that you've created, and you've been such a leader uh, in all these fields that you work in on a regular basis. And I always say that superheroes have origin stories. And I was wondering, what is your origin story in terms of becoming a poet? What drew you to poetry as one of your forms of artistic expression?
1: Yeah, so well, such a great question. And not sure I can live up to the whole superhero uh, reference. But you know, I will, uh, I'll definitely try. There is a a certain breadth to the things that I do. And it just comes from wanting to do things that I love, right. And Mm -hmm. so I think a lot of times we just narrow ourselves like, okay, I just did this. And then Kind of stay in our lane. and And I really don't necessarily believe in staying in one's lane. I think you should kind of always be lane shifting and changing mm-hmm. and and embracing things that either interest you and or where you feel you can bring value, et cetera. And for poetry, for me, I mean, I did kind of you know, sporadic writing of poetry, I think, like kind of all kids growing up and and did that. However, uh, a kind of really pivotal moment was actually early on in college. I visited a friend's home. I'm biracial uh, and then adopted. So my my birth father is Black Jehovah's Witness. My birth mother is white Irish Catholic, and I was then uh, adopted by a white Jewish couple. And so I've got you know all of this stuff uh, inside me and and that has influenced me in my life. And I was at a friend's house who is African-American and had a Black mother and a white father. And we ended up talking about kind of being biracial and all of that. And and I was really reflecting on in my childhood when other kids would say, oh, you're not really Black because I played the violin or did whatever, you know. And, And it kind of got me thinking about this idea. And it was just... You know, kind of where a lot of poetry comes from, where something I just couldn't get it out of me. It was just it sitting there in my head. They said I wasn't really black. And and it wasn't enemies, it wasn't people who didn't like me. It was like my friends who said, Well, you're not really black. Mm-hmm. So I was like, they said I wasn't really black. And I ended up just kind of mulling over that. And and it evolved into a poem over about a week, commenting on how I felt about and kind of doing a kind of reaccount of those experiences, but using the medium of poetry. And I found it cathartic. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. and I found it like, oh, you know what? I'm thinking about myself. I'm thinking about these circumstances in a different way. I'm processing them a different way. And most importantly, somehow I feel better. Through this process. And that led to the title poem of my collection of poetry from 20 years ago, They Said I Wasn't Really Black. And that's what kind of put me on the path. And then from that, Literally in that ensuing year, I then became, you know, really obsessed and started, you know, studying more and learning more and exploring more about what styles of poetry, how I wanted to write, things like that, and how I could capture some of these sensibilities and experiences and and emotions and, and illustrate them in writing. And so that really began there. And then that began to evolve into a host of things after that collection of poetry to spoken word. Uh, with classical music, and then I've you know done that for uh, over a decade, and most recently then evolved into this idea that I was thinking about what my poetry was, really aligning it with journalism and kind of commenting on these issues, events, experiences, but using this you know medium to creatively illustrate them, and then that led me to kind of. This idea of that, well, I think I'm a poet journalist, and I was like, well, that must be something, and looked it up Mm -hmm. online, and it really wasn't something, so I was like, well, I'll (laughs) just start that, and let me just put out that word, poet journalism, and wrote a poem, obviously entitled it, and then that led, ultimately, to my uh, most recent uh, collection of poetry, The Poet Journalist.
0: That's awesome. And I picked up a copy of that recent book, The Poet Journalist, which I read a couple of weeks ago. Is there something specific that sparked your desire to release this particular book now? Because there's sections in there on identity, right? On um, on current events. There's You are acting as the poet journalist and using this particular medium to comment on the things that are going on in the world right now. What was it that made you want to publish this particular book right now?
1: Yeah, so uh, a couple of things. One, I certainly feel like our our nation, even the world, but especially our nation, is just at a time where the more we can express, talk about, explore these things in our society, I think the better. And so, uh, the and these things kind of just generally define how I view a lot of things in the world, whether it's identity, whether it's black experience, um, you know, whether it's inequality, et cetera. But then and, and obviously the arts, but also what really helped to fuel it is that over the past couple of years, I had developed these partnerships with various institutions. So I realized I was like, you know, eventually, I, th- I think it's time for another collection of poetry. And I was like, I don't want to end up building this body of work, and then you know, I publish it. And if I'm lucky, you know, a couple hundred people read it, usually in academic circles, and comment on it and think about it from an academic perspective. And I'm like, that's just not the impact. Sure, I'd love to just hear that and hear feedback, but I wanted it to impact people. And mm-hmm. and so that led me to, you know, like everything that I've seen and built in the arts was that's through partnership and collaboration. Mm -hmm. So I was like, well, what if I do that? And what institutions have a focus or a mission that's aligned with the types of topics I'd love to explore and think about? And so that led me to then becoming the poet, journalist in residence of the Wright Museum for African-American History in Detroit, of the Rodham Institute, which focuses on health inequality in D.C., uh, and based at uh, George Washington University, Char Music, obviously, and the arts, being poet journalists and residents of Ovation uh, Arts Network, the Fisher Foundation, which does extraordinary work, especially in, in Southeast Michigan. All of these aspects kind of then built, and then the poems that I would that basically were being commissioned through these partnerships on a regular basis then helped to fuel fleshing out what would then become this collection of poetry.
0: What is your process for writing a new poem? Do you when you know when you come to the blank page, what does that look like? Do you have sort of a vision of where you want to go? Do you have a statement that you're trying to make? Is it more exploratory? I'm I'm a writer. We sometimes use the the phrase like, are you a pantser or a plotter? But what, what does that process look like for you when you're sitting down with a blank page?
1: Yeah, so great question, and uh, the quick answer is it depends uh, on on a host of things. So when I am and a and a significant percentage of the poetry I've been doing recently is part of these partnerships. So initially, what comes is a. Framing from the partner. So, for example, the Rodham Institute shares. You know, we have this particular initiative that we're working on, dealing with health inequality east of the Anacostia River and in, in DC. And and we'd love for you to do a poem about this community where there have been these health disparities, which was originally the Berry Farm. And so I start with a framing that I know. And so then what I typically will do is uh, research. Mm -hmm. So I research the community, people, all of that. And from all of that, one, I just get a sense, I get an ethos for what's emanating about this, you know, work that's kind of to come into being. Then on a more pragmatic level, I basically end up kind of drawing a word map. So as I'm doing my research, there are key words or emotions um, or illustrations that kind of come to light through that process. And through them, I basically create a word map from those that end up being the arsenal that I know I'll utilize in Mm. the poem itself. And so then what I have is a general framing, I have an ethos, and then I have some kind of building blocks and then for me it's storytelling and so I start thinking about a particular aspect and and by the way this may not be chronological for the poem so whatever I might start thinking about could be at the beginning could be at the end it's just it's just I just start now diving into a particular story so say for the berry farm or whatever and and imagery and I'm looking at one of the streets and a broken sidewalk so I just start a journey on that sidewalk? And are there crickets? Are there grasshoppers? Is there grass coming up through the cracks? And what does that reflect? Is there hope in the community? Is the grass coming up through the cracks, you know, reflect the same color that I see in a child's eyes across the street in a playground strewn with debris or, you know, Mm -hmm. so I begin kind of illustrative journey that I take and then I begin to do all that, and ultimately I end up with some type of rough structure for the poem. And then, of course, if I'm constrained in terms of length and things like that, and then, of course, where we're really I think you know poetry happens, which is in the rewrites. So
0: oh yeah, of course. Uh,
1: then uh, I end up with a draft, and then I get away from that. So I get away from that for at least 24 hours before I come back to it. And then I go through editing rewrites and so on and so forth and, and begin to really carve out what becomes the ultimate poem. So that's kind of a process when the, it's part of a partnership and there's that framing and really commissioning that that took place. For some of my other poetry, something occurs just in life. And or during the day and I immediately capture some aspects of it or th- that needs to become a poem and I encounter it or I quickly jot down some of the cornerstone ideas and then that flows into something again similarly. I always go through ultimately the end editing rewrite process and, and so on and so forth. And sorry, one other thing that I should say more so with poetry that is not part of my partnerships but i also sometimes think about the language that i want to use and in terms of that whether i want to use more rhythm more meter more mm. uh, alliteration more you know what what kind of tools do i feel will best serve what i'm feeling for mm-hmm. that particular poem and then I make choices about that as I as I'm drafting.
0: So I mean it's definitely a process that sounds like it is engaging all of your senses all the time and that I mean that requires an incredible amount of focus and intention and ability to kind of really ground yourself in the moment to be aware of all of those things. What what suggestions would you give to other creators and other artists who want to create, who want to take some of those things that you just talked about, some of those practices and habits, maybe the process, and they want to emulate it and sort of try it out for themselves. What suggestions would you give to them for ways to sort of get in that mindset and that space where you can really fully inhabit where you are? Because I mean, that takes, I would imagine that takes a lot of practice.
1: Yeah. And, and at least for me, I would say, some level of of discipline and framework and so what i mean by that for any kind of creative work for any of my books poetry or or prose or pretty much anything i do if it involves A lot of work. I have to have a framework; otherwise, I don't get it done, right? So, the number of writers who I've talked with who are, you know, on their first novel—oh, right, um, right, right? right—or you know, or or whatever. Well, you know, I'm struggling at you know five thousand or ten thousand words or whatever. Is that I I I at least have never experienced my creativity to express itself in such a way that I can create a final product of something naturally. And mm. what I mean by naturally is, is without some type of framework or discipline. That's um, powerful. Yep. Yeah. And and I think it's so important for us as, as creators to understand that because we want to be like well if it's not natural then you know it's it's just taking away now it's just fake or it's just constructed or you know and Mm -hmm. and we have this negative connotation that we assign to things if it just didn't flow freely or in some way like that and I find that excellence in the arts requires rigor And Mm -hmm. requires that type of framing on top of. So if all you have is the framing, and or, you know, diligence and discipline, then sure, you may, you may complete something you could put, you know, 60,000 words to, to paper, but it's gonna probably be lack any, you know, feeling or creativity or, or ultimately move a reader Um, So, of course, you need the creativity, but all too often I see brief and or extraordinary creativity that I could see we all could benefit from, but where the author of that, the creator, isn't able to bring it to fruition because of that. And so I can just speak from my own experience that... I need that. So what that means is that I don't, obviously there are absolutely times where I'm like, oh my God, I have to write. And something mm-hmm. happens or something, I'm like, oh, I gotta stop that. I just have to write. And that's great. And those are beautiful moments or sessions of creativity and kind of authorship. But then it needs to follow through. So there are times I sometimes try to just create a block and say, okay, here's it. it's six to 9 p.m. tonight. Here's what I'll be doing. But then I also try to illustrate my environment in which to work. So if I'm like, okay, I've got this great, you know, initial draft. I've got to go to, you know, the edits and the rewrites here. So where will I sit and do it? I may not even be feeling like it. I'm not even necessarily thinking in depth of that particular poem, but I'm like, I've got to do the work. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, and by the way, the structure with the partnerships means I have deadlines, I have I have to deliver a poem by a certain date and so on and so forth. So that also helps me to be like, I've got to get it done. And so then I'm like, okay, I've got to get it done. How can I get it done? So where will I sit? Will I be sitting down? Will I stand up? Will I work on it at my treadmill desk? Will I lay down on a couch? Uh, will, Will I have music playing? Which music? Or would that be a distraction? How will it be lit? Should I do this during the day? Or should I do this more at night? I create environment intentionally for myself that then I find helps greatly to then put me into an emotional and a mental place that I wouldn't just necessarily come to naturally, but now I'm in that place and then I dive deep and you know and start to do it. But and by the way, sorry, the last thing that I'll just say, especially at the beginning or the outset of whatever it might be, a session, especially with a book, I find that for my poetry it's a little bit easier since they're they're short sessions, mm. if you will, in and of themselves. Um, it's not even like tackling a chapter in a book, let alone the whole book. Sometimes I just am sitting there and it's blank as your, your initial mm-hmm. question. And it's like, w- what do I do? And where I used to just be like, well, it's just not the time I have to go away. If I have to create, I'm like, okay, I you just have to write something. It can be totally, because you can always throw it away in the mm-hmm. rewrites, but you have a job to do and your job is to write, so write. And so I just, if I'm totally frustrated, which absolutely happens, I just start writing. And what I find is that the first maybe couple lines are total nonsense and garbage that I do throw away, but i it always leads to something. Mm-hmm. I have never sat down and just started writing where I didn't end up with something that I was really able to work with. So uh, what I found is that's, again, just a great mechanism is just start to write. And then literally that process alone, even though it may start out in a terrible place, helps to bring you to a place where then you create. And then I find myself like, ah, oh, uh, now I'm there. I'm there.
0: I think sometimes we underestimate the importance of environment, environment both in terms of the physical environment and kind of in those, um, the parameters that we give ourselves or the boundaries that we give ourselves or we force ourselves to work within them. And I love just the discipline of that or the phrase that you you used, excellence in the arts requires rigor and thinking about what does that mean in terms of the environment that I'm going to put in place for myself to require me to continue to work even when I'm faced with a blank page and even when the first couple sentences, Mm, I'm maybe gonna throw those away.
1: Right, totally. And I think also part of this came from, you know, I'm originally trained as a violinist. Um, started mm-hmm. when I was five and that's where my degrees are in. And, you know, I love, like I think any, any you know, self-respecting violinist getting up on stage and playing an amazing sonata or concerto or whatever it might be, even, you know, unaccompanied Bach. But to get to that place where you can just express and connect with your audience you had to do your scales and your etudes. Mm -hmm. You had to do the rote work, the rigor to be able to have the facility through which to speak in such a way. And I view, you know, writing is exactly the same way, and especially poetry for me is exactly the same way. You have to have command of that facility of The words of the structure of the rhythm, if you're going to be able to convey what you want and move people in the way that you uh, want to move them or, or express or illustrate things in the way you want to hopefully trigger or serve as a catalyst for thought, emotion, connection, whatever it might be.
0: So I... I run a writer's community that's here in the Baltimore area. I'm over in Maryland. And we have—we certainly have a few people within that group who are full-time writers. That's what they do for a living. But for the majority of them, they are, uh, you know, writing is, I would say it's a little more than a hobby. I call it a craft. You know, it's something that they take very seriously. It's something they're pursuing. Some of them have finished Uh, Entire drafts of books and some of them have agents, but but it's not necessarily a full-time, you know, a full-time profession for them and something that a question that I get from that group and from artists in general when I'm having conversations is this question of should I do this full time? (laughs) You know, should I quit my day job and try and pursue this full time and make a living at it? Or is this something that I should just be content to continue to do on the side? And I don't think that there's a right or wrong answer to that. I know the answer that I the way that I have answered that for myself. But I was curious what sort of pieces of advice or suggestions or questions you might pose to an artist who's asking that question. They're in a particular place in their life, in their career, they've developed enough skill in a particular area that they're at least questioning, you know, could I do this full time? What would you suggest or what sort of questions would you ask someone like that to help them navigate the space of should I try and create full time as a living or should this be more of a hobby for me?
1: Yeah, well oh, it's such a great question and and this kind of takes me into my my entrepreneurship hat, you know, mm-hmm. I teach entrepreneurship at Michigan. So the very first question is is what do they want to do? So if I was talking with someone I'd be like what do you want to do? Do you want this to be your main source of income? Because a lot of times people may think, "Oh, I want to be a writer. I want to be a concert soloist." And then I'm like, okay, so let's just walk through that. So first, it's, is this what you really want to be? And then it's, okay, let's just walk through what that looks like, typically, as we understand it. So for a concert soloist, if you're going to be successful and that be your main income, you'll be on the road 200 days, maybe, or more in a year. You'll spend most of your time alone in hotels and or practicing, uh, you know, interspersed rarely by half an hour to an hour on stage, soloing with an orchestra, and then going to receptions with donors afterwards, and then going back to your hotel and moving on to the next town. So it's Understand writer, obviously sitting and being alone (laughs) (laughs) often for a long, you know, long periods of time. So it's not just, do you like, and do you, do you like the idea of being a writer and making your income from, but now that we actually lay that out, do you actually want that life? So that's Mm. first. Mm -hmm. Um, And then if someone's like, yes, absolutely. Then my first thing is, well, then you should absolutely, you should not rest until you make that your life. I believe in that so strongly. I absolutely love and am passionate about every single thing that I do. Um, Everything that I do, I put through the death test and the lottery test. Oh,
0: say more about that.
1: Yeah. So everything that I do, I'm like, if I won, you know, a hundred million dollars in the lottery tomorrow, would I still do what I did today? And if the answer is no, I try to figure out what needs to change. And what do I need to stop doing? And same, you know, uh, more morbid, but if, you know, God forbid, I had learned that, you know, uh, the end was near and, and that was going to to be my my kind of next chapter, would I still do what I did today? Mm. And if, again, the answer is ever no, I am actively looking to change that. So everything that I do meets the my lottery and death test so to say that I say that I absolutely really mean it when I share that if that's what you want to be doing if that's what you would do if you won the lottery then you should strive to do that so those are kind of that's the first couple of steps then it is okay now entrepreneurship so I know I want to be a writer and I want my main income to come from that okay how do I make that happen so first how much income do I actually need to be comfortable, let's just say, hypothetically, that's $100,000 a year. So I need $100,000 a year, so that's what I have to earn. So now I have to see, okay, what percentage of writers make that their books that they publish, What, how many books I have to, who would, would I have to get you know published? Is there a way to self-publish to get to that level or income-wise, what would have to happen? And then understanding the mechanics behind that. What percentage of writers? Okay, what's where's my experience level? What will happen with that, et cetera? And then looking to see, okay, how can I go about doing that? And do I have to be innovative to try to find a way? Because like any industry, there are either barriers, gatekeepers, et cetera, in the publishing world how are you going to go about doing that so if i'm just specifically in poetry does it mean i have to you know get in a couple of journals here or i have to you know get a particular poem here or i have to get one particular award before then i do this and then okay what's the time frame in which that will occur and right so on and so forth so you can lay out all of those things and then see how do i map my way so i'd say that it's very important to have a roadmap because if you don't have a roadmap and it's just kind of blind, I wanna do it and I'm just gonna write and everything magically will happen. Then I think unfortunately you could be, you know, destined for, for great frustration and potentially have it impact your creativity because you could become so discouraged. How can people not like it, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, So you have to take the real world assessment of things, understand the environment, understand the competition, know how much revenue you need to make and how and where will that revenue come from. And then I, where I think is just where things can thrive is in innovation. Some of the most highly compensated poets that at least I know, especially in terms of volume are Insta poets and poets who are doing a whole lot on Instagram which many traditional people and and writers in poetry don't like don't wouldn't even probably call it poetry or whatever and there's all of these divisions and I want to get into any creative arguments about that because I think creativity is creativity and if you move and connect with people power to you and you're utilizing an extraordinary extraordinary medium it Mm -hmm. may be different and in a different style than others do but Ultimately, you're bringing that impact, and I've, the same happens for people who say, "Oh, about classical, you know, instrumentalist." Versus if they take that, they say violinists who've then gone into, you know, pop music or other things, and so on and so forth. So, to me, I think you know, art is you know, in the in the eye of the beholder and the person performing. And if both are happy, you know, uh, a lot of others like to hate. But the point being that a lot of those Insta poets are very innovative, mm-hmm. Have found extraordinary innovative ways to generate revenue based on their poetry. And and most importantly, have found an audience yeah. for their poetry. So, um, So anyway, all of that to say that I think that ultimately, do you actually want to? Is it a life you want to lead? and then take a real-world, hard, fact-based assessment of what will lead me to that, how do I then build a roadmap and then be innovative and do the work, to be frank, to then actually realize that? And by the way, too, that's where, you know, for example, the bulk of of the part of my life in terms of, of revenue that comes from writing hasn't come from the publishing of the books I would love to, and I would love for more people to buy a mm-hmm. uh, poet journalist, but the regular consistent revenue comes through my partnerships and their specific constituencies who experience my poetry in a different way, often spoken word, than uh, what those who read my books do, and, and they do both, but ultimately you make so little money per book that you just have to sell yeah. so many For revenue to in any way make sense. Um, So it's really tough. But to me, again, by the way, sorry, this is the last thing I'll say. I know I'm rambling on this, but so important because people can realize their dreams by being able to do what they want and have that create income for them Mm -hmm. is that I found for almost everything I do in life, it's a portfolio of it.
0: Yeah, that's so important.
1: So it's not just oh, let me publish a book. It's oh, are there commissions? Oh, are there partnerships that I can develop? Oh, are there speaking engagements associated with that? Oh, is there shows? Or right? So so you you put together a portfolio of revenue, but it's all generated from this creative work that you're bringing to bear.
0: Yeah. So quick side note: um, we will have the uh, a link to uh, for listeners to be able to pie the poet journalist we will have a link for that in the show notes so make sure uh make sure after you're done with the episode that you jump on that link and, and go over and purchase the book
1: great um, awesome awesome the hard copy and paperback
0: Exactly, exactly. I have the paperback version. It's wonderful. Um, and I did read, it. I read it front to back in, in two sittings. And it was it. It was both encouraging and it challenged me, which is one of the things that I personally love. I love art that challenges me, challenges me to think deeper or think in a different way, or um just see the world in a different way. And it definitely did that. So five stars, highly, highly recommend it. Thank
1: you. Thank you so much, especially coming from you. That's, I just, I, that deeply, deeply uh, appreciate that and it means a huge uh, amount to me and if I can also just add to that uh, Tiffany that there's one of the things that at least I love this is just on the creative piece of things is that you know when I do poems I also share them with a few people before I finalize them mm. to get back and mm-hmm. what I love with certain poems is that some people I don't want to say it's a more surfacey, but they experience it just right on if you will the kind of top level, they experience mm-hmm. it, they like it, when I asked them about it, or what it meant, they kind of experience these big picture things and feelings from it. But of course, with most poetry, right, there's all of these you know, references or things mm-hmm. like that, that we may have put into it, and like, oh, but they didn't get that, or they didn't see that, or, and, yeah. and then yeah. other people where they go way deep, and they like pull out all these things, or they read them a couple times, and they're like, oh, but I see this. And you're like, but I love that differential, you know, just like mm-hmm. kind of visual art. I love having a spectrum of the way that people could experience a particular poem that I write.
0: Well, it speaks to the layers that are there, right, and the depth that is there. The fact that someone can go back and read it multiple times and and glean even more from it and have a different experience each time. Definitely. For sure. Um, I want to jump back to what you mentioned earlier about building a portfolio of work. So one of the reasons that I started this particular podcast talking to both entrepreneurs and artists is that I I often find with artists that uh, not with all of them, but certainly with some of them, there's almost a reticence to ask people to buy their work. Sometimes there can be um, there can be a little bit of either embarrassment or shame over the fact that they need to make money to be able to continue to produce work. And um, and I think. I think that there is nothing wrong with ambition provided, you know, that you continue to live life with integrity and and that you're producing work that you are proud of that you want to put out into the world. I don't know exactly what my question is, but I guess I'm wondering if you could just speak a little bit to uh, to artists who might be struggling a little bit with sort of claiming their space and learning that it is okay to do work and say and and ask people to to buy it (laughs) you know they may or may not you're not pushing it down anybody's throat but you know you you're producing something that you love you're producing something that is important to you and and for a lot of art that finds its audience and it resonates with them and the thing is that really good art it changes the person who experiences it right and it um it opens something within them. It allows them to to step into the world and to to feel seen, even. And so, really beautiful art is absolutely worth paying for. But a lot of people struggle with that. So, could you maybe just talk a little bit to that?
1: Absolutely. First thing I would say is that you know, again, unless someone in your family has won that hundred million dollar uh, lottery, and you need to earn money, you need to promote your creative product. In addition, if you are happy being the only person who experiences the impact of your creative work, great, and you don't need the income, then don't promote your work. But if you want your creative output to impact others, you must self-promote your work. It's not an option not to. The only escape or exception is if you can find someone who will promote it for you, which usually requires either that your work is already so well engaged with audiences that they can just take a percentage of Mm -hmm. what that audience is paying you, or you have to pay them upfront. So if you have the money to pay someone to be your advocate, or if you don't need the money, or if you don't want your work to be experienced by others, then you don't need to self-promote. Otherwise, you must self-promote your work. It's not an option. It's part of what you must do. And so I think it's, it's so critically important for artists to understand that. In music, you know, a long time ago, you practice hard enough, you did all of this, and then you could maybe connect with a good manager or whatever, that kind of thing. Somehow, if you could be lucky enough, you connect with some great agent and they, you know, put your work out there to publishers and, and something magical happens. In 99% of cases these days, that world is completely over. And so if you are a creator, you have to actively participate in the dissemination of your creativity. And if you don't, it will be a tree falling in the forest that nobody hears. And if you're okay with that, that's fine. But if you're not, then you must participate. Otherwise, I think that you will end up being filled with a significant level of not just frustration, but being disheartened. It's disheartening when we invest in creative work we put so much into it and thought and craft and hair and we feel we know it's a value and yet it doesn't carry a valuation in society or with others that's Mm -hmm. where that other piece comes in and we have to realize that that's part of what opens the door to realizing the valuation of what you've created I know it's crazy to you know, a lot of times artists like valuation of stuff that's like stocks and assets, <laughs> and so on and so forth. And but no, that the when we care about something we've created, when I care about a poem that I have just gone deep into, that's a valuation. I have a valuation of what I've created. So now if I wanna realize that, I have to participate in its dissemination. I have to participate in the process that engages others. Ironically, once you kind of begin to do that process, it can build upon itself. You do that initially, and then you get 50 or 100 people online who are connected or like something that you're doing. Now you're connected with them. And now maybe all you have to do is post and Mm. they'll respond in certain ways, right? So you can build on this. It doesn't have to be a constant thing but especially if you're early on and building something, you really definitely need to. And I can speak from personal experience with this, you know, I've, you know spent decades in the, generally in the arts field and in entrepreneurship and all of that, and built some several organizations that have uh, been able to have some widespread impact and won different awards, and even done spoken word in performance, performed with orchestras around the country and so on and so forth. But diving deep into being a poet journalist and also then authoring a second collection of poetry and having that been almost 20 years since my first collection, I had to do the dissemination work, right? I had to work to build these partnerships with, you know, now almost a dozen of partners. I had to make the case, I had to explain where was the value in what I was creating. So even after decades, if it's something new, if you will, that people aren't used to your voice in that particular way, in that particular medium, and or it's just something completely new, like no one had ever had a poet journalist in residence before. So Mm -hmm. I had to do the work to say, Here's what that is. I think it will be valuable for you and why you should do it and why you should pay me to do it, right? And uh, so you have to make the case. So again, you have to do that work. You have to be an active participant in the dissemination of your creative work.
0: And I think going along with that, you have to fully believe in it yourself, which sounds like a kind of a funny thing to say, but I think sometimes... That's something that I also observe is that sometimes an artist, they love their work or they love the concept of their work, but they're not quite fully there. They're not fully invested in it in a place where they can convey with 100% certainty and 100% belief that this this is worth your time. This is worth your attention. This is worth the effort that I've put into it, because I believe in it, right? And until we get to the point where we can convey that, like, I believe in my own work, it's really hard to convince somebody else to believe in your work.
1: Yes, yes. And if I could speak just briefly to imposter syndrome. Mm
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. It just, it holds so many of us back. I absolutely have it. You know, on the, on the one hand, I have such, I feel a sense of pride in the poet journalist and, and in the poems and, and in the partnerships and, and I've gotten feedback from so many people and reviews or things like that. Spent the first week on, uh, you know, selling on, uh, on Amazon, uh, before, nice. Kwame Congratulations. Right? before Kwame Alexander took over number one for well, poetry book, uh, okay American poetry book which I have no problem with right because yeah amazing at the same time there is absolutely a part inside me that's like what what are you doing you don't mm. have a poetry degree Aaron. you don't have uh you know you weren't an English major you should you shouldn't be doing this where do you do it right there's Always everything that I do. I have that as a violinist. I, I have that as I have that as an entrepreneur. Every time I've been public speaking for, for decades and have done all kinds of things and performed spoken word in front of orchestras. Every time before I go out on stage, I get nervous. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there is a part of me that's in there that absolutely wants to speak and say, Why how are you doing what do you how, why? It doesn't even make sense. There's got to be better people out there. You don't even like deserve this. What's going on? Um, And so the mechanics that I've learned over the years to fight that imposter syndrome, um, to focus on the work, to focus on The detail and then certain just little physical mechanics that I do too to fight against imposter syndrome is what enables me to kind of celebrate work that's done and then get to like, okay, how can I just be engaged with this more? Because ultimately, that's why I'm doing all this because I just simply love to do it. Mm-hmm. right it's 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 met that they you do know, lottery test and so i encourage just everyone if you feel those feelings of well but i not this or i haven't gotten this accolade from someone or i haven't gotten this particular degree or went to this particular school or whatever put all of that aside those are affiliations what really just matters is the work that you create and whether it connects with someone else and someone else is moved is empowered is somehow transformed or impacted by something you created out of nothing which is what writing is or i wouldn't say out of nothing i would say it's reinterpretation of the world around mm-hmm. us but in that creation where where there otherwise were not words in that order mm-hmm. um that but- you should just do that and do that unabashed. And if you believe then in it, if you believe it has value, share that unabashedly and say, I think this might be, it may not be for Mm -hmm. you, but Mm -hmm. I'd love for you to engage with it and see. And then we can go on this exploration together.
0: I've also noticed over the years that one of one of the ways in which imposter syndrome can actually be a good thing, if I dare call it that, <laughs> is that there are moments where it signals to me that I'm pushing my own edges and I'm pushing my own boundaries and I'm growing. And it's scary because, like you said, sometimes sometimes you try something and it doesn't actually work. But I think just the very the very fact that that tension does arise, you know that physical tension in the moment where you think, mm, I don't know. I don't know if I'm fully qualified to do this or not." it can be just a really good indicator that you are growing, that you are pushing your edges. And it's it's just, it can be a really good space to be. I think we all need that space from time to time. It would actually be worrisome if we were never in that space.
1: Completely, totally agree.
0: We haven't mentioned, I don't think we've mentioned your Arts Engine podcast, but do you wanna just mention that real quick for our listeners?
1: Absolutely. And anyone can check it out at artsengines.org. And this is a weekly show. Uh, it's released every Saturday, 52 shows a year with uh, 52 unique shows uh, with different guests talking about partnership. Again, uh, we partner with over 50 arts organizations, presenters, orchestras, dance companies, service organizations around the country and even around the globe, a couple international And it's the focus is arts administration. So what we wanted to do in this, we actually started it during the pandemic. So we're in our third year where we wanted to focus on who are the engines, right? Who are the ones who are actually making arts happen, enabling things to happen on the stages and on the screens and all of that? And so it's a show focused on arts administrators. Um, So we partner with all of these institutions and um, through that, they help co-curate each show and we think of a guest topic, all of that. They come on and then I talk with them about how they are empowering or enabling these aspects in arts administration. So whether we're exploring aspects of music education and how things are being done there, whether we're looking at choreography and dance or... Whether we're looking at presenters and how they engage with guest artists, and of course issues, topics, uh, you know, relating to uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how institutions build that, how they do staffing, how they do hiring, all kinds of different things, how they build teams. Um, So we're exploring all of these issues every week, and we do that in partnership with uh, Detroit Public Television, where the show emanates from, and it's just, again, a whole lot of fun, and uh, every week I get to, you know, talk with, as I'm sure you get to, you know, as you have this wonderful experience as well, Tiffany, I get to talk with just extraordinary leaders, and every single episode i learn from them uh sometimes i'm interviewing people i've known for you know a couple decades in the in the field and i always learn something new about them about the field about leadership so arts engines is absolutely a blast and uh and uh something that i love doing
0: that's fantastic i definitely encourage our listeners to go out and and find the show and watch it. I saw an episode that you conducted recently with Jonathan Hayward, who is the incoming music director at the Baltimore Symphony, and uh, just just fantastic. I, I saw him direct um, a show just in the last couple of weeks, and he's he's amazing. Definitely. Truly,
1: truly extraordinary, right? And so getting into kind of, right, how he views leadership, how he views Bringing together an orchestra, creating a unified sound, ah, uh, yeah, so just so much fun, and that was particularly fun for me because I have uh, a shared little history there in uh, Baltimore with you, and that I uh, when I was ten years old moved to Hershey, so I was growing up in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Every Saturday, took the bus down from. Hershey to Baltimore and went to Peabody Prep. And so spent a fair amount of time there. And then of course that led to some wonderful memories and times at Inner Harbor and
0: Oh uh, yes. All yep. of that.
1: So so I love uh love Baltimore It's a wonderful, incredible community. And so yeah, so that was really special to interview him.
0: Well, Aaron, thank you so much for being on the show. This was wonderful. I really appreciate you just taking time to share about your journey and sharing so much advice and so much good so many good ideas about entrepreneurship and art development and really being willing to kind of embrace who you are and embrace your work and learn to work through imposter syndrome. All of those things are just so important. If our listeners want to find you, if they want to go by The Poet Journalist, which I would definitely recommend. Again, the link for that is in the show notes. But if they want to connect with you or access any of your other work, where can they find you online?
1: Yeah, so they can actually literally just go to Aaron or they can go to poetjournalist.com as well and definitely connect with me there. And I'm on Facebook and LinkedIn, Instagram and Twitter. So this was this was really wonderful. And thank you so much for just everything that you do, your leadership and for inviting me on the show, Tiffany. I really appreciate it. <music>